What's up, y'all? I'm Otil. And I'm Mike. And we are on Patreon. Get on the bus, you guys. Get your bus pass. We put out an additional episode every week where we answer questions from you. Or sometimes we may just get off on a tangent about something important or cool that happened that day or a couple days ago. Yeah, it's Otil and I catching up and you are invited. So if you head to patreon.com slash comes a time pod, uh, you can join us. Uh, you can get the bus pass. We have some incredible merch coming soon. Uh, we've got a lot of great surprises. So uh, we would love to have you guys head on over. Yes. Most of all, we want to connect with you. So uh, get on the bus, y'all. Welcome back to Comes the Time. How about that one, huh, Mike? That was amazing. Oh man, we had Don Waz on the on the program today, and uh, man, what a way to what a way to start the new year, huh, Jennifer? And then Don. Whew. Yeah, he. Uh, we had a great, just like free flowing conversation. His history is just amazing, man, and uh, I see why uh, he's so successful. You know, he has the right attitude and the right personality type for uh, just the kind of life that he's had. I, I really can't wait for people to hear this one. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I needed this one today for sure. He had a lot of real sage advice. Absolutely. And uh, he's just so humble and so talented and multifaceted. Just really amazing individual. And I hope, I hope you guys all enjoy it. And, uh, it's a new year and, uh, Otil and I are very grateful that you guys rode out the second half of 2020 with us. And, uh, you're with us for, uh, round two of this new world we're living in. So, uh, thanks for being here with us. You could join us on Patreon at, uh, patreon.com slash comes a time pod. Uh, we have a, a special new um, episode each week for you guys over there. And as always, check out all the amazing podcasts from our brothers and sisters at Osiris at uh, OsirisPod.com. So enjoy. Happy New Year. And we'll catch you next week. Peace. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Welcome, Don. It's good to see you, brother. Hey, you too, man. How you been? Happy New Year. I've been good. I, I've not Happy New Year to you too. Uh, we, me and Mike, were both super psyched to have you on. 
That's a thrill to be here. Thank you, man. Yeah, it sounds like you've been a little bit busier than us. <laughs> it, it can happen. You know, I mean, one nice, well, one, I don't know if it's nice, but one uh, one positive aspect of, uh, of being locked down is that uh, a lot of people are making records. That's about the one thing you can do. Uh, so, uh, yeah, been been busy recording. That kind of seems like a, a theme with everyone that we've had on, whether comedy or music, is just to yeah. adapt and react as best as possible and put out content. That's it. Yeah, you find your avenue of expression that uh, is safe and floor it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You seem like you've got a pretty cool space there that you're uh, you're hanging out in right now. It looks oh, yeah. very tranquil and... Uh, complimentary to some creative uh juices flowing yeah no i like this room here yeah this is, this is just in the house uh I've, I've had worse rooms to sit in in my life for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah we want to get into some of that actually <laughs> you know <laughs> we we have a lot of uh it's like a mental health through that goes through the show and uh, so we like to talk about the downs as well as the ups. I like the the triumph, you know, coming back from being down, especially watching so many people not make it back up. But, you know, I really I have like Detroit stuff that I want to ask you because I know you're from Detroit. And I'm, oh, yeah, you sure. know, of course, being a bass player, I'm like, did you ever meet Jamerson? You know, I wish, man. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think people f fully when he was active in Detroit, I'm not sure that everybody knew how who he was. You know, he, he got recognition probably after he died, really, you know, and uh, I mean, I, we're certainly aware of how great those baselines were from, you know, from, you know, even being a teenager, you know, you you, you knew that something extraordinary was going on there. But uh I don't think the full story of James Jamerson, I, I'm not sure it's ever been properly told, right? You know, uh, uh, Pino just sent me a couple of articles that he found about him. You know, Pino's an, another Jameson freak. And uh, uh, I, there, there were some new wrinkles. I, I, I know a lot of people in Detroit who knew him, you know, and, and I've asked about him, but he's a pretty enigmatic character. And, it's an absolute genius, man. I, I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he came up with that approach to the instrument. It's like, you know, if you listen to like Robert Johnson, he's playing, he's playing bass, he's playing rhythm guitar, and he's playing lead all at once. So I think that's why they had to start rock and roll bands because one person couldn't do all that stuff, you know? And, um, same with, with James, man. He's playing lead harmonic line. He's playing, you know, percussion, and he's playing bass. It's it's really it's really awesome what he does. Yeah, for our fans that might not know who we're talking about, sorry about that. We're talking about the legendary James Jamerson that played. You've heard him on many, <laughs> many, 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 many Motown songs. Uh, he was the the main guy at Motown and I knew him for, um, electric bass, but I didn't realize till much later, 
uh, that he played upright to and was doing like jazz gigs. I think there was some tribute to Jamerson that was like all these different cats contributed to. And I think like played bass lines of his that they, their favorite Jamerson bass line. And, you know, I kind of learned, I, he might've moved to LA before he even got to chance. Then he moved to the West coast sometime yeah. later on. Yeah. So, um, what's your favorite? What's your favorite oh, James Jamerson line? It's so hard. I, I've I've used so many of them. Like with Dead and Company, I'm on Eyes of the World. I'm kind of playing what's going on. I agree, you man. Know? That's the that's that's what that song is. I, I agree a hundred percent. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, me too. A, a friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine named David Brendel, told me that he's just one of these guys that goes down the rabbit hole. He knows more about music than I do by a long shot. <laughs> but he said that song was actually inspired by a tune called "Tighten Up" by Archie Bell and the Drills. No, that's that's so soulful strut. Tighten up is yeah. Hey, we're Archie Bell and the Drills, and now do the tighten up. Come on, t- yeah, right. Yeah, the chord uh, chord change is different, but the bass line is really close. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, but it it and what's going on have that same kind of thing. But I'm just fascinated with the yeah. whole Detroit thing because of you know Motown and all that stuff is you know well. I have a few theories about it. I knew a lot of the guys. I played in the band with Pistol Allen in the 70s. Uh, I got to know him pretty well and got to play with him uh, a lot. Uh, Robert White, I played with in, in Detroit in the 70s. Um, Dennis Coffey, I, I still play, uh, uh, I still jam with him, man. He's, he's, he, keep, he came along a little later. Um, did you ever play the game of operator, you know, where people sit around a table and they whisper something into someone's ear and then it goes around the table. Yeah. And by the time it gets back, it's completely different to where it started. And I, I think music's kind of like that too. If you, if you think of New York and LA as being certainly the music centers in the 1960s, there's something about coming from the provinces that by the time it got out there, it's like, it got changed a little bit and, and in Detroit, the the group of musicians, Barry Gordy put together were primarily local jazz musicians. So I think they were trying to imitate New York R and B and just got it wrong. Detroit style. Detroit was a crazy place. You know, I grew up there in the fifties and the sixties and uh, people, not just from all over the country, but from all over the world, came there looking for work after World War II. The auto plants were booming and they all brought their cultures with them. And there's a real jambalaya of music. You know, there's there's everything. And when you started putting those influences, you couldn't avoid the influences, you know. So even if you were a jazz musician, you heard country music, <laughs> you, you, you couldn't avoid it being there. Even if you were a rock and roll musician, you heard polkas, you know, <laughs> it's just everything was there. So there's this thriving jazz scene. I mean, incredible jazz scene. So at, at Blue Note, there's a really inordinate number of Detroit musicians who, who recorded for the label over the last 60 years. And uh, so great jazz scene, great blues scene, probably best epitomized by John Lee Hooker. Mm. Great rock and roll, uh, certainly in the 60s, MC5, Stooges. Uh, so, uh, so you put all that together, you kind of 
come up with something a little bit different. And I think the, the guys at Motown were imitating records and I don't necessarily want to say getting it wrong, but, uh, but putting their own thumbprint on it, you know, and, and they came up with something real crazy and, and Motown music, it's so distinctive, you know, it's one of those rare things like maybe stacks is like that. Maybe chess records is, is like that where you, the minute you put on the record, you, you may not know who the artist is going to be, but you recognize the sound and the players Im immediately. You can identify it. Did you grow up glued to the radio or was it hanging out at the record store or all the above, man, you know, radio was, was super important. You know, I used to sleep with a little transistor radio under my pillow in the sixties. And that's why, that's why I don't mind listening to music on this. To me, this is just the it's a new radio transistor <laughs> radio. Yeah. Sometimes in fact, uh, if I'm feeling homesick for Detroit, I'll find, you can go online and you can find like 1960s Detroit tiger games where, where like Al Kaline is playing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go outside and barbecue and I'll, uh, you know, hang this from a tree or something. And, uh, and it sounds just like, uh, like I'm back. Tape, a, <laughs> tape a, an antenna, tape a, a wire hanger to the phone. <laughs> I, I had a, uh, a fun trip across country, which, well, doing stand-up comedy, which ended at uh, Mark Ridley's in Royal Oak. Mm -hmm. And while I was in town, I went to uh, the Joe Lewis to to see the um the red, red wings play yeah. and man what a cool place like going back to like a an old arena like that with the steps that are so small and the you know you, there's yeah. like one atm in the entire place and it's yeah. those old trough style bathrooms and stuff it's really fun to go back to like the throwback venues and just think about some of the sporting events and concerts and stuff that you know yeah. i'm sure as a kid you must have been there all the time I'm so old that Joe Lewis is like a newer arena to me. I, the next door was a place called Cobo Hall. Yes, that's yeah, so right. Okay. I have and dead that, tapes from Cobo Hall. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I saw the Stones there in 65 and 66. I saw the Dave Clark Five there. I saw uh, the Beatles didn't play there. Beatles played Olympia Stadium, the hockey, which is the old hockey stadium. Um, and the Detroit Pistons used to play in there. And if you look at it, it's, I mean, it's still standing. They use it as a big church today, I think, but, uh, wow. it's, it's funky. You know? <laughs> it was great. It sounded terrible, man. The show sounded terrible. They didn't have monitors back then. The first two times I saw the Rolling Stones, they were sure vocal masters on the stage and, and they, and nothing was aimed at the singers. <laughs> wow. I remember just uh, an echoey mess, man. <laughs> my, uh, my old mentor, Colonel Bruce, he told me about when monitors happened. You know, it's like Yorma when he's talking about when tour buses happened. I was like, wow, you guys were touring <laughs> when there was no tour buses, right? So, Colonel Bruce said, we, they put another PA on stage and faced it at us. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and he hated it because he said it was responsible for everything getting so much louder. Like it didn't really clear things up. It just made everything louder. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Stones talk about it a lot. They couldn't really hear themselves till 1969, 1970. You just heard girls screaming. They said, it's just chaos. That's right. They couldn't hear themselves like at all over the screaming, huh? Mm -hmm. 
Wow. You're just like, like when I, when I chatted with Ken Kesey, he told me about bringing, going to see the Beatles with, they took the bus, the guys from the dead went, Bobby went, all of them. And he said that the, they were so taken aback by the minute the Beatles hit the stage, everyone just started cramming towards the stage and you couldn't hear the band. You just heard girls screaming and the guys in the dead were like, we don't want this. Whoa. (laughs) Like we just want to find a big place where everybody could just spread out and move back, take a step back and have a good time. You know, that must've been wild to see the stones back then at a, at an awful sounding venue with no PA. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Cra- but they, they were charismatic as anything. I, I remember them as really great shows, but I remember that. Yeah. This is with Brian Jones, you know, first two times I saw him, Brian Jones playing guitar first three times I saw him. But uh, in 69, when they got some monitors and they did that, uh, give me shelter to it. They were badass, man. By the time they got to Detroit, that, that was, I'd never seen anything like that. Is that one of those moments like working with them that I don't get starstruck that easily, but there's just sometimes when you like, or go back and talk to your 15 year old self for a minute for me, you know, when my, when I was recording with Herbie and watching my older brother and Herbie sit together on a bench and talk, I was just like, dude, for real, you know, I was, was the stones like that for you or had you done? Oh, it still is, man. I'll tell you a story. This just happened to me. I was in Detroit probably in September I was there. And so I drove back into my old neighborhood and uh, I was sitting out front of the apartment I grew up in. And I, I flashed on the, f- the first time, you know, when I got my driver's license, the first time I took the car out. And I, I, I remember I got, in, you know, his, my parents had a Mustang. It would have been 1968. And uh, I, I turned on the radio and it was the first time I heard Hey Jude. Whenever I hear Hey Jude, I think of that incredible freedom of getting the car and being able to go anywhere and being alone behind the wheel. So I thought, well, shit, man, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the radio on. There's an oldie station there and let's see what happens. Right. So I'm, I'm sitting in the same spot where I, I drove the car for the first time. And, uh, uh, what came out? Jumping Jack flash came out by the stones. So I thought, all right, perfect, man. I'm going to drive. And I started driving through the neighborhood and I got in about a hundred feet and I got a text from Mick Jagger. <laughs> Holy shit. And I thought, oh my God, man, that's just, if my 15 year old self, 16 year old self could have seen that, it just, it was, it would be unthinkable. And it was, it was really one of the most significant moments of my life. Like everything came full circle. And I thought, all right. <laughs> this is good. Not only not only would you have to explain that to your 15-year-old self, but you'd also have to explain text messages to your 15-year-old self. You're like, you know the radio under your pillow? Well, that's going to be a phone soon, and Mick Jagger is going to send you a message. Yeah, no, it's crazy. There's still – I've been working with them almost 30 years now, but there's still, there's still one or two moments in the course of each session – well, I look around the room and, and I just can't believe I'm in the room with him. You never become inured to it. That's good. I'm glad to hear that because uh, I feel like some people do. <laughs> and sometimes working with your heroes can turn bad. You know, it could be a real letdown too. So yeah. I'm glad for that though because those are my favorite stories. Some of my favorite stories on the podcast where I know I've had them where 
if I could tell my 15 year old self, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. Like you couldn't have convinced me of it. You know, he'd be like, yes, first of all, there's Star Trek communicators and, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. you're going to get texted by like, you know, your heroes. So yeah, that probably would have, cool. my 15 year old self would have sabotaged it. <laughs> I would have ruined it somehow. <laughs> I don't want that See, guy knowing anything. My third, my thirty-year-old self was trying to sabotage it. <laughs> well, I, I, I could tell you this, man. Having like your wildest dreams come true, it it's both. It can be both gratifying and. Uh, uh, a little fucked up too. I, I I remember probably the one of the darkest periods of my life began when I won a Grammy for being producer of the year. Not that not that that was something. I didn't have it like pasted on the mirror in the bathroom every day. You're gonna win this. I, I wasn't. It wasn't the goal post. I wasn't driving towards it. But uh, you're aware of it, and certainly, uh, I remember. I remember winning it and my my real feeling at the moment was being relieved that I didn't have to finesse losing. I didn't want to go to a party and have people say, well, uh, you were robbed. I voted for you. So it was like, it was like a kind of relief, but I mean, you've heard it said a, a, a million times, you know, that um, if, if, if you feel there's something missing inside of you, if you're not feeling whole and you think that some measure of success, whatever your definition of success is going to be, is going to fill that hole. It's always, uh, <laughs> it's always a shock when it doesn't, when you still feel like the same shithead, uh, no matter what. And, uh, so I went through that. I, I definitely skidded a bit in my forties, but, uh, you know, you get back <laughs> straighten that wheel. You straighten the wheel out. You know? The thing that that I'm I'm so inspired by by you is the how the vast array of artists <clears throat> that you've worked with. You know, I mean, it's not like you stayed in one particular genre. I mean, you take the B52s and the Rolling Stones. I mean, that's pretty different. You know, but both yeah. phenomenal successes. I mean, did did you? I'm always fascinated by that when you listen to like who produces an album or who, you know, like, do you take time to like, do you have like a courtship process before? Or is there kind of like, it's just gotta be such a, you have to be such a chameleon. Kind of, but then it's not that different uh, to jump from, I've, I've done more extreme, like go from Wayne Shorter to the Stones or, sure, or, yeah. or from Wayne Shorter to Neil Diamond, which I did in one year. Right. Okay. And um, I, it might be the way I, I approach producing records, which is I'm not an auteur producer. I, I, if you're looking for me to give you a sound, I want that hit sound. I don't do that. What I, what I enjoy doing is getting inside an artist's head, figuring out what they want to do and helping them achieve that. So the, the methodology, the methodology doesn't change that much from artist to artist. You, 
you're still paying attention to what they're going for and helping them realize it. The, the different things, you know, you do something different every every time, maybe even every day on the record, it, your, your gig changes. But it's ultimately the same goal. And if you understand uh, the, I hate to use a word like the process, it sounds so formal, but if you understand the process of making records, it, it doesn't, the style of music doesn't matter. What matters is that whoever the artist is, that they're being for real, that they're opening up and letting out this, this part of their inner life that defies uh, explanation, you know, that you, where words fail to convey the true depth of our inner emotional lives, we use art as metaphor to communicate it. And that's the same. It doesn't matter what modes or scales you're playing or anything like that. That's just, or, or even, you know, like textures that have, that get assigned, like you assign genres to musical textures. I remember when, when we did Nick of Time with Bonnie Raitt, I got a call from a promo guy working on it from the record company. And he said, man, if you can just take the pedal steel guitar out of that song, I could get that on AC radio. And I was like, you know, really, man, it's like, it's just a sound. You know? <laughs> how, how, can, how can that like frequency response, uh, like prevent a song from being emotional, but it, it does. There, there are certain connotations go along with the pedal steel guitar, part, you know, particularly at that period of time. And, uh, we didn't take it out. And record did all right. <laughs> but um, point being, the, the, the textures are just textures. It, it's, it's really about the storytelling, even if even if there are no words, even if it's John Coltrane, you know, he's telling a story. Charlie Parker's I mean, Charlie Parker talked about that, you know, being a storyteller. I always think about that, uh, just that folk aspect of music. That's what took me the longest to get. I think I was such an instrumentalist. You know what I mean? Like it was about the instrument, then it's about music, then it's about, and it's like, of just what about what your story is or even what happened that day, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, and all the greats have it. There's still, whether it's Art Tatum or Bird or whatever, you know, there's still that, that element, that human element that everybody can relate to, you yeah. know? Yeah. That's I think amazing. that's the beauty of the Grateful Dead, you know? It really is. It really is. I mean, just start with those, you know, with those lyrics, you know, that, that's, that's, that was a, that was a big thing to discover going out and playing those songs in front of people was that, and seeing how they react to certain lines. Uh, and then really, you know, that was one of the things Bobby, you know, when, when I started playing with him, he was like, you know, don't, don't play the chords, play, listen, learn the lyrics, learn what these songs are about and play to the storytelling. And more importantly, stay the fuck out of my way when I'm telling the story. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> so I, I play the lyric, I play the song, you know, I play the story. And, and I'm 
also cognizant of uh, of like that I'm accompanying this, the story and not I'm not the storyteller. You know, like my job in Wolf Brothers is to is to give Bobby the room. It's very different from what you know from what you do. I'm, uh, I mean, I, I th which you have a really hard gig, Ochil, because <laughs> yeah. you have to. The, Phil is such a a unique, charismatic, brilliant bass player, but it's so personalized. And yet, if you don't, if you don't get that sound, you know, when when Mayer uh, auditioned, I, I went up to him, played bass, right? Uh. Before before you were involved, and I uh, and I don't know what Phil's doing, man. I don't know how to play like that. Uh, I wish I did, but I can't. I can't. I really. It's just so uniquely him. But when I played with him, it, I made him sound like a bar band, like a cover band. <laughs> it was all the original guys, you know. But uh, you got it. So you you do an incredible job of capturing that thing, but also. Uh, providing play also like being the bass player <laughs> and and holding it down and keeping a groove going and 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 playing with taste man i, I love i love listening to you it, it reminds me you know daryl jones is the same thing with the stones bill wyman very very linear player but those lines you got to play those lines man if you don't play those lines it you're missing so much of those things. So Daryl, who's a, a low end guy, you know, he, he, he found a way to be himself and, and yet to incorporate the most important melodic lines from Bill Wyman's bass parts. And you've, you've done the same thing. You have to be able, you can't play karaoke bass there. You know, you gotta be in it every night and it's gotta, you can only do that if it's coming from within you. But I'm, I'm really blown away by how, how well you've uh, assimilated into that music and, uh, and cover both bases. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. It's hard for sure. Yeah, I, I feel like I do the same thing. Like I make it sound more like a bar band, but not, you know, it's just with Phil, there's, it's more amorphous. So, you know, from Phil stuff, there, there are not a whole lot of like bass lines to like stick to. He just has a way that he weaves yeah. and I can, I, and actually James Jamerson is what I access for that because James didn't just play a repetitive bass line all the time. He would just like weave I guess it was his jazz influence, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but it's way more difficult with Phil. And so I just was like, okay, I'm going to try to play that way where it's moving. But then when there's times where if the groove makes me want to play like the way I would play it, I just lean into it hard. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think, oh, this sounds like the cover band version, but people respond to it because it's a, it's like kind of a new thing for doing it that way you know mm -hmm. so i can get away with it as long as i suspend it too but it's been really a challenge really a challenge but that's uh, what I, keeps it fun man from show to show it's so it's a you go out to every night it's brand new 
Yeah, you can't say if you're bored playing it, it's totally your fault. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And I know that I shouldn't to begin with. So that's the foundation is that it could just like you're living right where you know there's going to be an earthquake or the sand's just going to shift yeah. to the left or whatever. You know, like, I love it. You know, well, yeah. one thing you can be sure of is that. Whatever you played on the song, the last time you played it, it's definitely not going to be that. <laughs> Don't go That's back to that. <laughs> it, it, that will not work again. You know, you just have to go into each thing open minded. I, I don't know how how much Mickey and Bill change what they're doing night to night, but Jay Lane will he'll he'll play something different on the bass drum every time. So. I start there, you know, like, well, what's, what's tonight's groove. But I know that the, whatever we, we play, if you try to go back to the part you played before you're doomed and you just gotta, then you gotta forget it, which takes half the song. And then. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I then love you're getting it. In, then you're getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wolf. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. Well, it's funny when you, you bring up Phil, too, because it's like Garcia. It's not like Phil auditioned for the Grateful Dead as a bass player. Jerry went up to him and said, I want you to play bass in my band. Like, that's how, when Phil started playing. So it's very similar to the way that Bobby's like, just play the story, you know? You listen deep into some of those, you know, 25, 26 minutes into a play-in from like the early 70s, and it's like... Mm-hmm. Phil is just like, they're all on his back and they're riding him and trusting and, and it's going to strange places. And then you, you know, it it is so unique, but then you do think about it that like, it wasn't, he wasn't like your classic bass player joining a rock and roll band. No, he he had that weird mad, mad scientist conductor mind. It's like, it's, it's the John Entwistle I guess guitar players, right? I mean, it's, it's guitar players playing playing bass. Um, but if you listen, like, like to Jerry's solo bands, John, who, who played bass with him, was, he was he was a pocket guy. Uh, oh, oh, hang on, sorry. Someone's... Don't make don't make we said hi. <laughs> uh, there we are, we're back. <laughs> God, it's Keith Richards. No big deal. <laughs> So I think there's a lot of that, I guess, because, you know, Barry Oakley with the Almond Brothers was that same way. Yeah. Really unusual uh, style because of being a guitar player. But I think the whole, you know, I love going back and just uh, randomly. I have old Grateful Dead stuff come up randomly. So it just bounces through different eras and never uh, ceases to amaze me how different they will approach something like I don't know if they kept doing it that way or if it's like, wow, I never heard them do it that way before, you know? <laughs> it's just... Well, it's, it's liberating 
to come into it because there's really no base part to imitate. You know, there's not, you know, you're free every night. It's a tremendous freedom that comes along with it. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. great. I mean, I, I love, I, I don't know if you find this at all, but I find myself missing the actual songs. Like I heard, I heard Lost Sailor the other night. And I thought, oh man, that's, it's like an old friend I, I haven't seen. And I, I, I missed that sequence of chords and what you can do moving through it. I remember when he sent it to me, I didn't know that song. He sent me that insane circumstance. And I got, I was like mad at saying a circumstance. I, I thought like, why is this so complicated? This It's so unnecessary. How, I, and it's hard to learn, but once you learn it, it's, there, there's just so much fun to play. I, those songs are more fun to play than any songs I've, I've ever played in my life. I can't even explain why. I don't, they just, they, they just melt under your fin fingers or something, man. It's a, it's a weird thing. I don't know, but it, and it, it's a, you get a sensation from playing those songs and, and they, they become like friends. Do, do you find that? Yeah. I mean, it's the architecture of it. Like, cause I found the exact same things. Like some things I would be like, okay, you did this just because you wanted to trip yourself up or not. Like, you know, you just made it deliberately harder. Like even like a super simple song with super simple changes, but this time it's this way, this time it's that way, this time, like box of rain, like yeah. really hard. You're like, ah, come on, yeah. you know, but then like you say, once you internalize it. And then for me now also is I'm starting to think that um, the lyrics are a form of Oracle because they hit you at a certain time in your life. Like, oh, that lyric was meant for this moment in my life for me to take it that way now, whether it was meant that way. It's like the weirdest. I woke up dreaming about Terrapin and uh, it just hit me. I was like, this is like an oracle. Have you ever had that? Like, uh, you know, I was uh, dosed. <laughs> I think it was at Fenway. And uh, so it gave me a lot more than what I was expecting. I usually just micro, you know, and is a story behind it, but it ended up, I didn't realize it, but it was like, Wah! you know, and dark star happened. And I had a religious experience because the lyrics and the moment and everything that I was going through at that second, I was like, Oh my God. But now I can happen to me without that. Like I'm, it's such a multi-layered thing that the grateful dead, it's, it's it's something, man. But I really think uh, it's about learning those songs. And I even told my nephew recently, uh, in the last couple of days, I was like, "Learn Lost Sailor." I was like, "Learn Lost Sailor," you know, "Sailor Saint," and you're gonna you're gonna realize something, <laughs> you know, very profound. Yeah. Weather Report Suite was like that for me when I heard I came across this YouTube of Bob. I think he was still a teenager. Weather Report's really on. It didn't have any lyrics, Come and on. so he was doing like Joni Mitchell. I thought, oh, he's writing the song to the lyrics, and that's why the song is like he had a whole melody. And they fit the lyrics. 
and him being so young and it's just him on acoustic guitar and and humming this and it's the beauty is just profound it's like how did you nail something timeless like that at that age it just there's so many layers to them man yeah yeah Yeah, i have some old tapes of like in between songs, like, you know, after like a beat it on down the line or something, he would start playing that, you know, it'd almost be like, uh, like almost like an exercise wow. that it became to, to him and, uh, way before there were lyrics. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's like it's, the Grateful Dead's like a magic eye puzzle, you know, where like when you finally see it, you're like, Oh my God, it's been beautiful all along, but now I really see the depth. Yeah. And like you said, and it's like books, like certain books, uh, like the four agreements or on the road or certain things that you can read at different points in your life. And it means something completely different mm-hmm. and it's the same words and it's got the same magnitude, but it just mm-hmm. means something to a different part of your soul or your heart or whatever, you know, yep. and you're like, Oh man, it's like an old friend, like a, an old friend stays there for your different, you know, phases. Yeah, that's really true. And it's a, it's a measure of good poetry too, that, uh, it the the lyrics are impressionistic enough that everyone can hang their own inner lives on it. It, it means something different to everybody. I think that's why Bob Dylan's such a great writer. I think the Stones are, are write really great lyrics like that that you can't quite pin down. It's the stuff, you know. Uh, I called my girlfriend, but uh, she was out buying shoes. That That's like so specific. <laughs> I don't know that song. <laughs> you know, if you get too specific, then there's then there's no room for, for the listener in the song. And the great songs, the listeners are almost the co-writers. You know, they, they bring something to it and attach it of an ultimate significance to lines and it'd be different. I, I see it out in the audience with in the, at the, at the Bob, you know, with the Wolf Brothers shows, you know, that you can see different people respond to different lines. Uh, and then you can see everybody respond to their like key moments that, that kind of, that really, that, that really blew my mind when they start singing along all of a sudden it's something when I, I didn't realize that that, <laughs> <laughs> it scared me a couple times. <laughs> All of a sudden, everybody's singing in the place. Um, the audience is a really—it's uh, a really important part of that too. I've, I've experienced that more than a- any other. Any other? Sorry. <laughs> can you can you hear that? Is that? It's like my house with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> sorry um that's all right <laughs> and the, the the audience is such a significant part of of, of that whole show you know that I've, I've never experienced it to that degree where the where everybody's feeding everybody and it, it everyone elevates together mm-hmm. that's, that's a pretty incredible thing they're they're like a an, an extra audience is like an extra person in the band. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I've had know, to come to terms with the fact that I'm never going to know this stuff as well as the, like uh, most of the fans. Yeah. But it's really great too, because I have everybody as a resource, like a perfect stranger that I met on a plane is a resource for me to learn something crucial about the band, mm-hmm. you know, 
like for uh, my our uh, lighting guy Chris Reagan, <laughs> I didn't know in uh, the other one that there's this you know the bass bomb is supposed to come and it's like this legendary thing. I so I'm missing it and of course nobody told me. You know Wait, we, we played it like five I, I, times. I actually don't know about it. What is the bass bomb? It's just this part. Yeah, it's just this part where I learned about it because I saw. Chris Reagan's notes, or maybe he emailed me like a couple, he had made notes and one of them was like, tell a teal about the bass bombs. And I was like, what is this about the bass bombs? He's like, oh yeah, dude. And the other one, you're the one that starts it in the beginning jam. It's just kind of going. And, uh, I do a, an ape, you know, it's just like, and the, the sound man actually does this. He pushes a button that increases the low end to where it's like, you know, um, unbelievable. And so <laughs> the first time I did it, the crowd was like, finally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, man. <laughs> oh, I got, I got a, yeah, no, I didn't know about that. Yeah. It's, it, there's always another thing. And so I just love talking to deadheads because the audience is such, but I'll never know it as much as they did. I mean, you know, somebody that's seen like 300 shows or plus, uh, you yeah. know, how am I ever going? I never, yeah. I could just spend nothing, nothing but Grateful Dead for the rest of my life and still not know, you know, <laughs> but I just stay open because I'm like, people tell me, man, I really wish or, you know, and I take notes. Mm-hmm. I really do. You know, what I can do, I do it. I never see anything like it, you know. <laughs> Had you seen him uh, a lot bef- before you, you, you played in Dead and Company? One time. Yeah. <laughs> One time. That's because John Popper put us on the guest list. And it was at, uh, they were in Vegas. It was so hot. And I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before, but I, ha- I haven't told it to you, though, Don. But we were there. And I really, uh, I think Jerry was in pretty bad shape then. But I wasn't really paying so much attention to the band as the whole thing. Because I had been in this crowd playing festivals and through the Horde tour and touring with Fish and Blues Travel. So I knew the vibe, but now here you are with the guys on Mount Olympus. Like, you know. And so I'm just taking in the whole thing. And as soon as Mickey went to drums and spaces, start hitting the beams, a thunderstorm broke out. Thunder, lightning, just like torrential rain. And I was just, and the crowd <laughs> goes and everybody's like hitting each other. Like, yeah, they did it again. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, that happened. And then I saw, uh, fortunately Jerry was still alive in it. And then it happened again at, uh, first night of Grateful Dead 50. Kreutzmann flew me out and I hear the crowd going off and me and Jess look up and we're like, there's this huge rainbow. And I was like, you know, this is a real thing. Like, I don't know what it is, but you know, you see the stickers, you know, mm. they control the weather and all that. And I was just like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I kind of think they are, you know, something's up. I don't Your magic. It's crazy, man. Yeah. Don, when did you start? Mm. When did your grateful dead, uh, relationship begin? Was it early on or later? No, I saw him. Uh, I saw him in Detroit at like the East Town Ballroom, like maybe around like 1970 or something. That's, uh, you know, pig pen. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild, man. You know, and it was a different thing. And I, I, I was like a, 
a, a jazz fan at, at that point in my life, you know, and I could, I understood what was going on. I thought, all right, they're just changing the beats and, and I, I didn't really understand modes at that point, but I, I, I understood that the basic principle underneath was similar. Yeah. And uh, I appreciated what, what they were doing. I, I dug it a lot, but I was not, that was the only time I saw him. Uh, I, I saw him then. And then, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd known Bobby since the nineties, the but really just socially kind of, you know, we hadn't, hadn't really played together much. Uh, they, they came to see me, Bobby and Mickey came to see me, uh, well, it was at Blue Notes. It was within the last 10 years. I'm not exactly sh sure when it was, but they, they wanted me to put out, uh, you know, some of their solo stuff uh, on, on Blue Note. And while they were in the office, uh, uh, John Mayer was working downstairs in Capitol Studio B. And I had already made two records with him uh, you know, in 2011 and 2012, I think. We, we made uh, Born and Raised and... Uh, Paradise Valley. And every time I got in the car with John, he, uh, he had the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius and was, and that's all he listened to. I was shocked. I couldn't believe. So he was the one who really got me back into the music because he, he explained the allure of it at least enough so that I started paying attention to it. So when, when Bobby and Mickey came to my office, I called John, I said, man, you, whatever you're doing, come up here right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he met him and awesome. and uh, the plan was hatched for him to come up and and jam at uh wow. at tri um <laughs> and and mike gordon was there initially to 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 play bass that day and uh and then then i played one day and uh, that was get, getting reintroduced to that music and certainly the first time i'd really played it Played it badly, but played it. <laughs> what What were the first ones that you learned? Or was it just a jam? I think uh, I've, I've got I've, I've got a version of us playing "He's Gone," which make, it makes me cringe to listen to. It. I can't really play it to listen to it because I, I played too much, and I don't know what the fuck I was doing, you know. But I I, I didn't get it. Um, and I knew I wasn't getting it. It was bad. I would have liked that gig. I mean, <laughs> but I didn't, I, I wasn't worthy of it, man. I didn't, you know, John, he, after that meeting, he stopped his record. He was making a, an album downstairs at, in, in Studio B and he just shut it down, cleared all the stuff out of the studio, went home and shedded Jerry for like three, four months because there was that kind of lead time before this all right, in January. I will do it after New Year's and we'll get together and play. And uh, he, so when he walked in, man, he knew those songs and he had started analyzing Jerry to the point where, like I said, you don't want to play karaoke, but you want to understand what he was doing so that you can find your way of doing it. So he, he I thought he was, awesome from the first moment he 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 got it he gets it i, yeah, I think it's uh i think it's always been part of him and 
I, I think he does a wonderful job. It must be fun to play with him every night. I, you know, that, that's he's a he's a great musician. Well, it takes time too. I mean, I think uh, I think about like where he has now, as opposed to where when we started. And yeah. obviously, the same for myself because yeah. I don't know how you could get it. You just got to get in, and you keep going, and it just you learn. It's just a gradual thing. It's like an osmosis, you know, but like where he's at with it now, and you know, mayor, he's such a rabbit hole guy. So he'll go just on the technical end, like the amps, the guitars, the string, you know, every, the pickups, all the, you know, every effect, like he goes so deep on everything. And, um, but you know, he's also going deep on the vocals, the guitar, also like the roots of everything. And I think that's one of the big thing is a, about the band is the roots are so, uh, disparate, you know, or just varied myriad. It's probably the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's what makes it super fun, especially for a hyper intelligent guy like him, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, that's why I say you cannot be bored. If you're bored doing this gig, you're just, uh, I don't know, man. I don't see how. Like I was singing Gamora one time, which we don't even do with Dead and Company. It's a Jerry band tune, but I was doing it with my band. And I'm singing it, and one day I was like, oh, this is a country song. Like, But I wouldn't have realized it if I wasn't singing it. Like If I was just playing it on bass, that would never have hit me. But the way I, when I was singing it, I was like, what is this? And I was like, all of a sudden, I'm just like thinking of George Jones or something. I was like, oh, this is a country tune. So it's so, it could be, it's coming from many different places at once or this place or another place. And I just, I love it. John is just, he's the perfect type of mind and talent for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, he he does, gets, I think he does a beautiful job. And it's yeah. it's really cool to watch. He was he was such an unlikely choice, <laughs> uh, and and yet he was the perfect choice. And it, it, to see how he's endeared himself to long term dead fans is really it's beautiful. Man. I think yeah. it was meant to be because you know him and Weir have the same birthday. <laughs> and you know, Colonel Bruce called me. He goes, you know, Bob has the same birthday as uh, Mayor, and I was like, what? So I texted Mayor. I was like, you really have the same birthday as Bob, and and I don't need, I don't know if Mayor realized it. And he goes, October sixteenth. I was like, oh wow, Colonel Bruce was right. And he said, who's Colonel Bruce? Like, <laughs> I just, but I always think like sometimes I think those things are meant to be, man, because yeah. it's when it's that unlikely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that's the thing. That's the proof. You're like, come on. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's like with Fare Thee Well and Trey, it, it was kind of like this thing where he was coming in, standing in the audience. You overhear old deadheads going, let's see what this kid's got. You know, like already kind of mm-hmm. putting him behind the eight ball. And then those same guys are crying their eyes out to crazy fingers in, mm-hmm. you know, 20 minutes. But it's it's that like I'm kind of like rooting for my guy, Trey. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then when Mayer came in, it's kind of like I remember being like, wait, who? <laughs> like the guy waiting on the world to change guy or like run through the halls of my high school. But like, I didn't give him the list. I went back and listened to stuff that he did, you know, with like his trio and stuff. And it's like phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And he's a Connecticut guy and I grew up in Connecticut. So it was kind, kind of neat to be, you know, like, but he came in no, um, like unassuming, like he had no Trey almost had like these inevitable shoes to fill. Do you know what I mean? Like that fish dead thing. Yeah. 
And, and that to me was kind of almost like, I was nervous. I was like a kid. I was like a dad watching his kid play little league. Like when Trey was out, I'm like, just pitching the world series and win this, win us this game. But yeah, mayor, I feel like came in in a, in a good position where he was kind of like, you know, nowhere to go, but you know, wherever he took it. So yeah, awesome. thank you. Thank yeah. you for introducing. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> how was this past, uh, how was the experience this past, uh, you know, week? This holiday, um, it was wonderful. You know, we, we we had Jeff playing piano, and we had Greg Leach playing pedal steel. And I really liked that that version of the band a lot. I, I think we'll, uh, hopefully we'll do more as a quintet. You, when I first uh, when I first started, Bobby referred he wanted me to play like Jimmy Garrison. Mm. Uh, and we listened to maybe it was Equinox, or, uh, Africa, one of those songs where he's just, he's just playing low end and he's holding down a thing while Elton stretches, uh, Elvin, Elton, Elvin stretches, <laughs> McCoy's stretching out. And that, that's kind of, there's a real nice conversation between Bobby and Jay Lane that comes from playing together for 30 years or whatever they've been doing. Uh, and, and, Having the other two guys there playing, I didn't have to, I didn't feel compelled to, to there was no place to go anyway, you know, because it was full in that range. So I was able to stay down low and I really tried to channel some combination of Jimmy Garrison and Willie Dixon. We, we yeah. started with New Speedway. And it's the, this is the first time I realized, oh, it's Wang Dang Doodle. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I got this. Exactly. <laughs> I never caught that before. It's funny, you know, you mentioned, uh, what was the song you said was a country song? Gamora. Yeah, Gamora. So I had this, having the pedal steel on there, I had the same realization on uh, Touch of Grey, which is mm -hmm. kind of a hard song to play because yeah. it's got, first, it's, everyone's on those accents. You know, there's a lot of accents in the thing. And if everybody plays the accents, then how does it groove along? That, that's always, I always found that problematic. Also, there are all these counter melodies and a three piece, when, especially when one of them's a, the drums, that you can't cover all the lines, you know, and you need all those little lines. So having Jeff knows all those little lines mm -hmm. and he and Greg locked in on them. And I realized, oh man, Touch It Gray is a country song. As, and just play it like a country. Don't worry about all those accents and everything. And it was the first time we had a, a groove under it. I was really, really pleased with that. It's, there's, there's, there are new discoveries all the time. But I, 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 I liked having, I liked having less space, so I didn't have to go up as high. I can't do what you do, man. You, you, you're, you're a virtuoso, <laughs> man. I. I I love your bass playing and, uh, and, and you blow my mind. I, I can't, I, I, I just don't know how to do that, but I can hold down <laughs> low end. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, it's a good thing because you'd be in big trouble if you did what I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, I think it's meant to be different. I, I look at these, uh, I look at Wolf Brothers shows as being like an intimate night with Bob Weir. And and it's really the f the first time you've been able to hear his guitar playing 
you know, without him weaving around somebody else. And you can yeah. really, he's a mind blowing guitar player, man. There's nobody like him. And he's way better than I think people know he is because he's always been in this, the, the, the thing that he's so great at, which is in, he's a generous guitar player. He, he feeds everybody these great things to play off of. And, and he's really listening. And the musical conversation with him is, is captivating, man. That's wonderful to hear what he does. But he does the most unlikely stuff, man. He'll do some Segovia kind of lick and then something so raw, John Lee Hooker-like, like all in within 20 seconds. You know, it, it's, it's a very... It's very entertaining conversation that, that he has going on the guitar. So you, you get to hear that really for the first time, I think, you know, without anything else playing, you know, playing in that range. And, but mainly I think of it as like a folk show. Like if we were, there was a guy I used to play with Peter, Paul and Mary. I can't, I don't even know his name, but he was like the folk bass player, played string bass and he didn't even stand. He stood off to the side a little bit and he accompanied the folk singers. I think Judy Collins had somebody like yeah. that out with her, you know. So I, I think of that with Bob as like, this is different, man. Just stay, stay out of his way. Let give him room to phrase because he definitely he'll phrase. Well, they're dramatically different every night, you know. Like they, mm -hmm. they so if you try to think, well, he's gonna he's gonna finish the line here, so I'll answer here. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> He'll change it just because it's really that's where it's I'm trying, you know the the Ron Carter book uh f finding the the right notes or something like that is that what it's called well, you got it right there. <laughs> oh wow <laughs> what's it searching searching for the right notes is that what it's called yeah finding the right notes finding the right notes yeah it's just given um, to me <laughs> that's like I, a couple I, weeks ago i love that so much in fact he just had a post where he said on instagram where he said the same thing and uh and that's it. Just like if you, I'm asking myself, is it, is this really is it really necessary to play right here? What what's actually okay? And then if you once you if you get deep into it, you just know that you can play one note and let it sustain for two bars, you know, to to the the next change and maybe through the next change, and it, it gives him the room to phrase. But it's a complete. You can't do that in Dead and Company. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have this. It doesn't have the sound. If you, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do it all the time. Yeah. But I I remember when uh when his um uh, solo album came out this last one and uh and then uh he was at Red Rocks mm -hmm. and I saw that group. And uh, it was just super low volume, everything. And it was beautiful, man. And yeah. I rarely get to watch stuff at Red Rocks and like get the cool <laughs> experience, you know. Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, I get it. And he just really goes to work. And it's he, that's where he has his superpowers. That's his happy, that's his power spot, you know. Yeah. And I, I wish we could do that more but you know there's just there's certain things you know in dead and company where it's gotta it's the gotta be the thing yeah it's the thing you know so i'm really glad for him to get to do that 
you know, yeah. and uh, I wish I didn't frustrate him quite so much. But, uh, you know, when you're working with uh, bands that have been together a, a really long time, you're going to make one guy really happy and another guy really unhappy. It's not always the same spot. It's not continuous, but there's certain times where you like, I got to go this way, man. I'm sorry. And I'll be back. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when we had him on the when we had him on the podcast on you know we talked about he he mentioned how you know when he is singing each song he becomes the character in the lyrics Mm -hmm. and that from a fan and from somebody who's you know woken up to those lyrics fallen asleep to those lyrics like you know it's been the soundtrack of everything to hear him talk about that and then think about like a black-throated wind where he's like the, mm. the hitchhiker or the, you know, and it's, then you can see it perfectly mimics the way that he plays mm-hmm. where it's just, there's so much power in one you know, cause those, you know, your character isn't the same all the time. So how could your playing be? Yeah. So it's just so, so it's so perfect and dead on for the style that he, yeah. you know, he plays with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love listening to him, man. It's, uh, I love listening to him. I love being able to interact with him. We love listening to you guys, man. Well, it's very kind, man. Well, it's my favorite gig I ever had in my life. You know, that's for sure. Uh, uh, That's awesome. Keep doing it. That's really great to hear, man. That's really great to hear. Well, you do a fantastic job at it, man. I love your playing too. And I wish I had had the upright... I know Bob would love that, man, you know, <laughs> but you do a great job. And uh, I, I could tell you care, you know, and I could tell you get it. And, you know, it's, it's the whole, it's a big thing to get. I wonder why it took me so long, you know, I guess, to, to get around to that music. Yeah. To get it. Like, you know, friends have been trying to turn me onto it since high school. But they never dosed me and took me to a show. So I can't be like, why didn't you guys just do that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess you just have to let some things come in their time, you know? Yeah, you know, you, if you, like I said, but the, the, the task that you face, which is to hold up your end of the, of the melodic conversation, but to hold down the low end the way you know how to do it, that's, that's a, that's a super hard gig and to, and to find your own way of doing it. So, so that you're truly engaged night after night after night. Uh, maybe if, if you'd gotten in there earlier, it would have, you wouldn't have been able to approach the music with a, a beginner's mind, you know? That's true. That's really true. And I know they would prefer it that way. You know, I hear Phil talk about that with all the different players he plays. Like, oh, no, don't play like Jerry, you know. Mm-hmm. And Bob told me that, you know, he was like, you know, play it how it makes you feel. Yeah. I mean, that's why you're here. And it, then it's just a matter if you're brave enough to get naked, you know, and just reveal yourself and put it out there. And it's scary, yeah. man, when the when the fans decide they like you. It's... A huge relief, (laughs) you know, because that's the only way you can really do it. It's just like, you know, thank God there's so much there. Did you, uh, did you meet 
uh, resistance from diehard Phil fans when, when you started playing with Dead and Company? No, I think everybody was so lined up on sides about Mayer that (laughs) (laughs) they're like, oh, he's that guy with the Almond Brothers. We like him, you know. (laughs) Two drummers, he'll be fine. Yeah, Yeah, you know. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. You've been, even if you weren't in that band, you've been a part of that world. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of coming from really from the aquarium rescue unit with Colonel Bruce, because fish and uh, widespread panic and blues traveler really were the ones that helped us be seen by anybody at mm-hmm. all. And, uh, and that's how I learned about the scene, but I hadn't been to a dead show, but I knew all these people were grateful dead fan or deadheads or whatever right. you want to call them. And um, yeah, so I had, you know, I was with the Almond brothers for 17 years and we had played, with Phil, like I, Phil and Bob had sat in with the Almond Brothers, and uh, so I had met those cats. Um, yeah, uh, people kind of knew who I was already, but there was still, you know, there's still that thing. But I had also faced it coming into the Almond Brothers. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it was easier because Barry Oakley had passed away, and so had Lamar Williams, and uh, it's a lot tougher if that it's not the case, but. You know, I kind of i I felt a little more confidence just in my own identity with the audience, you know. And um, so, yeah. But that's what are you going to do? That's part of the fun in a way, you know, because it's like, oh, jeez, that first night, man. Because <laughs> I'm not just thinking about me; I'm thinking about Mayor too. I mean, we knew it sounded good, and we felt like okay. And I had some old school deadheads, you know, like Rose Solomon had been around for you know, like all these people. Yeah. And they came up to me in rehearsal, and they were like, "That's what you know." I was like, "It doesn't sound right." They're like, "Whatever, whatever. Don't try to make it sound. It's that. It's about your energy. It's about your energy, you know." And that's just all your intention, right? That's mm-hmm. why you're you work with it because you know you have this thing for the music where you get it and so if you want to make it work then you're already on the right track you know and the fans that's what they could feel i think that's why mayor worked because they could feel like hey this guy is on the bus mm-hmm. like for real i don't know and and then it was beautiful to watch that whole thing or people are just like no Never, and they're like, you don't know what you're missing. Why don't you open yourself up, man? Just like you know, it's, it's so funny. It's still happening. I just love it. Yeah, too funny. But man, one thing I always want to ask uh, uh, the podcast: we kind of have a mental health, you know, theme that we always like to touch on. And you know, for people that have been so many places and done so much, had passed their wildest dreams come true. Um, I'm always interested, not necessarily in the details of the bottom, but what was it that helped you get out of it? Like, what was your moment of grace or what was your process or, you know, like, uh, well, it's a, it's a complicated question. I mean, I, I overall, yeah. If you live long enough, you see, you discover that everything's cyclical, that the crest of the wave is equal to the trough. And in terms of a, a career 
in music, a career is not the right word, a life in music. There, there are going to be periods when you're on a roll where the, where you're open up and, and there's stuff coming in from the ether all the time, you know, ideas. And there are going to be times when that's not happening. And, uh, it takes you when you start with it not happening and that's a fucking drag when you you know when you can't pay rent and <laughs> and then and then it, then it happens and then the first the first return to the trough is is a shocker and then after that you kind of know uh, all right, that's 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 the way it is. You, if you want to experience something great, be prepared to experience some extreme lows, and then you just learn how to cope with extreme lows. It's not it's not the end of the world, man. It's, it, good things happen when you you know can happen in in that period, but and knowing that it's going to come back, it always bounces back. Always bounces back. It's 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 physics, man. It, it's got to come back. It's all waves and you're going to be all right. So what I do now, when I, when the trough rears its ugly head, man, I just keep working. There was a period yeah, around like 2009, 2010, where I was pretty sure I was done, you know, like the, the, mm -hmm. my style of producing records, the kind of records I like to make were, were not fashionable. Uh, they were not selling. Uh, I didn't think anything was selling. <laughs> um, and I, I just thought I, I'd run out of steam, but I knew better. I, I knew that as long as I didn't die, there'd be, a, you know, I'd come back up again. So I, that's, I just kept making records. If no one would hire me, I made records for free. I just didn't stop. I, I feel it's like, uh, it's like sports a little bit, tennis play. If you, if you go, you, you can't just come in and play Wimbledon if you haven't been practicing for the last six months or whatever. So I just, I just kept my ears, you know, in shape and in tune and uh, kept kept my chops up as a record producer. I made records for free for two years. Wow. Some good records, man. You know, uh, a couple of, there's a cool Todd Snyder record, a couple of cool Chris Christopherson records. I just did them because I wanted to do them, you know. Uh, and then it, then it comes back. It's actually... It's actually working with John Mayer. He called me out of nowhere to do Born and Raised. And uh, he took a real flyer with me because I was, I was definitely not, I was cold, cold as fuck. <laughs> but he wanted to get a certain thing and, and, and we clicked, I think, personally right away. And he gave me a shot with that record. While I was in New York, we took one night off uh, and uh, I checked the Village Voice and I saw this guy, Gregory Porter, a singer who I, I had his first album. I saw that he was playing at a little jazz club called Smoke up on the way up on the west side. So I went there that night and uh, it was just one of the greatest shows I ever saw in my life, man. I, I, I loved what he was doing. It's amazing. He's so good, man. I stayed all three sets. I wasn't there for business at all, man. I, I just, I was just a fan. I sat there, drank coffee, ordered ribs. It was great. And the next morning I was having breakfast with an old friend of mine, a guy named Dan McCarroll. And Dan 
I knew him as a drummer and he was married to my assistant from the 90s. That's really how I knew him. But he played play with Sheryl Crow and Lloyd Cole and the commotions. And he got involved in publishing. And at this point, he'd just become the president of Capitol Records. So we were just having breakfast. We weren't even talking about music for most of it. And uh, at the at the end of the breakfast, I said, wait, is, is Blue Note Records still part of Capitol Records, because if it is, you should really sign this guy that I saw last night, Gregory Porter. Well, unbeknownst to me, uh, Bruce Lundvall, who'd run Blue Note Records so beautifully for over 30 years, he was ill and he wasn't able to, con you know, at Parkinson's and he had hit the point where he couldn't do the gig full time. And uh, when I said that, he said, no you should sign Gregory Porter. And he offered me the job right there over breakfast. Wow. Uh, oh. and so that, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been there with Mayer. I wouldn't have been there with Mayer if I hadn't kept my chops up by doing, you know, records for free. And, and then something, something about, you know, all of a sudden, you know, John had, we had two number one records in a row and, uh, and I was the president of a record company. <laughs> <laughs> and before you know it, oh, oh, okay, I'm not down in the trough anymore. So the way you deal with it, the long answer to your question, you know, is like just you just never give up, and and you just have to have this uh, this internal uh, confidence that it, it comes back, that the lows are equal to the highs. No one is just no one experiences all lows. Uh, that would be flatlining, which means you're in the in the middle. But who wants to be in the middle, man? Flatlining is death, you know. So, so you, the more interesting your life's going to be, the the more you you're going to have to deal with some unpleasantries too. But uh, it's worth that's, it. That's incredible. And you know, right now too, to hear that at 2021, which I'm calling season two, um, <laughs> COVID ain't over. Mm -hmm. It's season yeah. two, yeah. but we're, uh, you know, there's a lot of artists that are in that working man, you know, blue collar, you know, no hits to fall back on. There's no breaks to, well, I'll just take a year and record yeah. an acoustic. No, this is like, am I going to end up driving for Amazon or am I still a comedian or a musician or an artist or whatever? So, you know, to, to remind ourselves of that, that, you know, that the highs and the lows happen and, you know, they both end and, you know, be prepared for both. That's yeah. serious advice for, for a time where we all need it. Thank you for, for sharing that, man. That's incredible. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I hope, I hope people, it takes a while to figure, to know that you got to be alive for a while. If I, and I, I don't know if I was young, I'm not sure I'd believe it, but I heard other people say, I'm sure I heard other people say, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember in, in 2009, in that period where I wasn't getting much work, I read an interview with with Rennie Davis, who was one of the Chicago seven <laughs> and had later gone off and he was involved with like some guru Maharaji or someone like, you know, some kind of guru. And, uh, it wasn't political, but he was being interviewed somewhere. And he said, remember your greatest asset is you, you know, that no matter what happens, you're, you still got you. There's something that everybody, everyone's got a strength. 
you know, and just, and if you play to your strengths, you, you, you rise up. And, uh, that, that, re that interview, just reading that it really helped me so much, man. I thought, okay, stop worrying about shit. Stop worrying about how you're going to get through next month. Let's have a long range thing. Who are you and what can you do? What do you have to offer? And, and let's, let's play to that. Yeah. I think, uh, I try to tell my students that, uh, you know, I, I all my eggs were in one basket. I never went to college. I can't do anything else. <laughs> this is it. So I figured at some point it's got to work out, you know, yeah. Yeah. or not either way we're doing this, you know, but yeah. the other thing I tell them is, you know, that you got to give people something they can't get anywhere else. And there's only one thing and that's you because you get everything else <laughs> from somebody, you know, there's Ron Carter out there and there's like, you know, there's a list of guys, yep. but it you can't even, if you can make yourself irreplaceable or you can make yourself irreplaceable, even though everybody's replaceable by really finding out what you are, and when uh, you figure that 100%. out, yeah. then you've got a gem. You know, a rare gem. I, I agree, man. That, that, you know, one year I worked on uh, American Idol. <laughs> they had producers on one season. And so they, they called me, you know, and we, we'd work with the kids. And uh, that was that was the big thing is like, don't sing it like somebody else. Be your only chance of winning this thing. You're only the, the only prayer you have is to be yourself and show why you're different from everybody else. Be the best version of you that, that you can be. I remember in, in the nineties, uh, I was working, there's a period of time where I worked with a bunch of incredible songwriters, right? Like Brian Wilson and Christofferson and Willie Nelson and the stones. And there was all like right in a row. And then for years after that, every time I sat down to write something, I'd sit down at a piano and I, and I wouldn't get two seconds in. I thought, like, what is the point, man? You know, like, you're never going to be as good as Brian Wilson. You're never going to be as succinct and, and emotional as Christofferson. I thought, and then I thought, well, you know something, man? Those guys are awesome. I can never be them. But they didn't grow up in Detroit in the 1960s and drop acid and go see the MC five, the Grandy ballroom. And you know, the, the, there's a, a unique set of roots that I have. So if I, if I can be as true to that as possible, it's even okay. Not to no, no one's going to be as good as Brian Wilson. Let's <laughs> just be the best version of you. And there's a place for you. You know, you're, you're going to have something to do and you're not going to starve. Uh, but that's hey, that's man. the only shot you got. Brian Wilson was just being the best version of Brian Wilson. Yeah, that's the best, man. <laughs> Thank you, man. This has been awesome. This is really great. Yeah, cool. I'm so uh, glad yeah. No, you guys are very good. You make it very easy to converse. <laughs> <laughs> I find it neat that you're telling that story, and it's you know, Mayor calls you up, and now you're both in that Grateful Dead family you know what i mean like that's the part to me like that's the the happy ending at the at the end of the tale is that both both brothers under the on the bus you know <laughs> it's wild how things work out man 
Yeah, one day we got to do that idea I was talking about. Uh, I want to get together with you and just like go through the tunes that we play in common. Let's do it. And like, you know, have the three, the three way, the triangulation, like Phil, you, me. And I think it's just, it's fascinating. He's one of the most fascinating bass players ever. And thank God he set that template the way he did, because it allows you to just be like, whatever you are. He's like, never do it the same way once. I yeah. mean, like what more freedom, <laughs> What more freedom could you be given, you know? Have you had him on the show? On your podcast? No, I, not let's, yeah, do, I, let's do that. It'd be good. We can do a Q&A. We can ask him questions about the songs and what he was doing on them. Let, I would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be super cool. Man, and Lost Sailor, say he does some stuff in there. It's, you know, it, he does the, he plays the tritones, you know, or the fifth, it moves in a tritone, I think, and he plays the fifth instead of the one. Mm-hmm. And it's it just like, to get it in my head, I just kept shifting back and forth and it sounded like Iron Man by Black Sabbath. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is, it's like, this is gothic as hell. Just like, wow. And Phil just, you know, of course, he's just trying. I was like, man, thank God. It's just. <laughs> but yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's just great talking to you yeah thanks man it's really good to see you pleasure to see you mike Take absolutely care. man happy new year and thank you for uh the music yeah good to be here take care peace brother peace. <laughs> it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.